Good morning, Chapel family. Well, if you would take your Bibles, let's open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So we're uh, continuing in our study, actually just one more week uh, in this book, and um, then we're going to move on to, uh, well, we have Easter and then a, a new study. 1969, El Paso, Texas, a good-looking junior hire was walking home from McGoffin Junior High School through a vacant lot. Uh, He heard footsteps, turned around to see Kenny Smith running up to him from behind. Kenny called out, I'm going to beat you up! Somebody had forgotten to tell Kenny it was the 60s, the time of peace and love, and give peace a chance. I I hadn't done anything to Kenny. I I really didn't know there was a problem, had no idea what was well, I mean, he's just coming up, you know, just, he said, you know, he hated me, I don't know, because I was good looking or, I don't know, had good grades, uh, got, didn't get into trouble, I don't know, but for whatever reason, he was going to beat me up. I had an enemy, I didn't even know it, and in some ways didn't even care, but except that it was beginning to be a problem. I kept trying to get past him and he wouldn't let me, he kept getting in front of me and this went on and on for five minutes or so and Finally, as I tried to push past him and just go home, when he fell backwards, tripped over one of those little flat cactus, you know, things that's sitting up like that. And so then he was really mad when he got up and, and, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden this booming voice came out of the sky, said, Keith, is this guy giving you trouble? It wasn't God. It was this big kid that lived across the street from me named John. He was, he was over six foot tall. Remember, we're in junior high. He was a grade older than me and, uh, I don't know, three or four years older. Uh, he was a big kid. And uh, I'll never forget, as, you know, he just reached over, grabbed Kenny, bent way down to get eye to eye with Kenny, and he said something to the effect of, if you ever bother Keith again, you will answer to me. You know, I never had any trouble with Kenny the rest of my school career. I had an enemy but didn't know it. But fortunately, since I wasn't much of a fighter, I also had a really big friend. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and here in verses 10 through 18, it's the passage we read earlier in the service, so... You're a little acquainted with it. In this passage, there's some bad news and there's also some good news. The bad news first is this, and it's that we have an enemy. It's difficult to imagine as we sit here this morning in our Sunday finery, sitting on cushioned pews in an air-conditioned room with full bellies and in peace, and comfort, it's hard to imagine that we have a great enemy, that we are in a spiritual battlefield and in the midst of a spiritual war. It's difficult to imagine, but it is the reality. I have a feeling if we could ask this morning our Christian brothers in Iraq, if we could ask Christian Sudanese or Christian Afghans or Christian Syrians 
or our southern Filipino believers, I have a feeling that none of those folks would have a trouble saying they know we are in the midst of a spiritual war. That they know that we have an enemy. There's something about where suffering for your faith is a daily possibility, if not a daily reality, that brings the reality of a spiritual war to light. But it is nonetheless real whether we feel it or not, whether we know it or not. And this passage tells us some things about our enemy that we need to know. And the first is that our enemy is not human. And that's why while it is more real to those who are in the midst of persecution, they're more aware of it, the the reality is that their human persecutors are not the enemy. We read here, matter of fact, let me just read again these first few verses. It says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we tend to think that that difficult co-worker We tend to think of that problem neighbor or that other political party or ISIS or whoever. We tend to think that those are the enemies. But our enemy isn't the person who slanders us or the person who abuses us or the person who persecutes us or the person who opposes us. Our apparent enemy is not our real enemy. Our true enemy here in this passage is not human. Our true enemy is the spiritual forces behind the people and the groups and the governments. Spiritual unseen enemy who is at work influencing and controlling and manipulating much of human activity. Our enemy is not human. Our enemy, our passage tells us, is also the devil. Our enemy is the devil. The, it means here the slander or the accuser. And some folks are surprised. They say, you know, Pastor, do you really believe that there is a devil? That there is Satan? And I say, absolutely, yes. And anyone who doesn't is foolish. The Scriptures couldn't be clearer from the first pages. Genesis chapter 3, when the devil steps on to the scene with with Adam and Eve and tempts Eve and and Adam and Eve both fall into sin. Satan is there. All the way through the Scriptures till you get to the last, the end of of the Bible, to the last pages, to Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is finally thrown into hell. The Bible couldn't be clearer that we have a real and a personal enemy. Satan, the most glorious, the most powerful of beings that God created, the Scriptures tell us. But he rebelled against God. And he is your mortal enemy. He hates you because God loves you. And because you love God, if you are a follower of Christ. 
Scripture tells us in 1 Peter that he goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It says here to be aware of the, and that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil so we understand that the devil works in ways that are involved plotting and planning. He is a meticulous planner. It, we understand from that that his plans and plots are sneaky. They're schemes. They're sly. They're subtle. I would say that most of the time that you and I are under the attack of Satan, most of the time that we are in his sights and that he is busy at work trying to destroy us or trying to trip us up, you won't even be aware of it because he's sneaky. Schemes of the devil. Because of that, he likes to work, be in the background. You may be one who says you don't believe in the devil or you might ignore the devil, but the reality is he is there and he does not ignore you. Our enemy is not human. Our enemy is the devil. Satan, our enemy, is also the devil's forces, his coalition, as it were. Verse 11 reminds us that he is not alone, that he works with a whole host of beings, the Scripture tells us. A third of the angels fell with Satan and they became his spiritual powers. The text here uses four words to describe them. Rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A lot of things we don't know. We can't really say what these different divisions mean, but several things we can tell just by looking at these terms. These satanic and evil forces are powerful. They are, just look at the words that are there. They're powerful words. They are also, they are evil powers. Also, they are spiritual powers. They are demonic. Though they are spiritual, they influence earthly matters. We can see as well that they are organized, orchestrated. And six times in these short little verses, we see that they are against us. Now, just in this little bit, you're starting to feel a little vulnerable. <laughs> it's exactly the point. It's exactly what Paul wants us to know. This is serious stuff. And this is an important message for us to hear. How many of us as believers go around defeated and discouraged? We go around feeling powerless. It's because we have an enemy who is attacking and we, many times, don't even know and don't care. The bad news, we're outgunned and we're outnumbered by our mortal enemy. We are powerless before this foe. But remarkably, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, Go run! <laughs> Go cower in fear somewhere and just wait till the day that Jesus you know, rescues you and takes us home to heaven. Unbelievably, what Paul says here is in verse 10, finally, be strong. He says, be strong. And I put a question mark there. Are you serious? I was quaking in my little, you know, in my pants when Kenny Smith was coming after me. When we have an enemy like this, 
And if we really are outgunned and outnumbered, how can we possibly be strong? Well, there's the good news. The good news is there is power that is available for us. We are to be strong, not in the fact that you are a strong person, not in the fact that you have in you, in your own self, great power and great wisdom and ability to stand against this enemy. But we are to be strong, he says, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. And, he goes on, in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's significant because what it's saying, is it's a wonderful little phrase, in the Lord because Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign God. He has all power, that's His strength, and His might is, means He has the authority to use it. See, it's possible to have a lot of power but not have the authority to use the power, to wield it. But Jesus is sovereign. He has all power and He has all authority to use all of His power however He so chooses. And God is speaking here through the passage and He says, Be strong in My power and strength of My might. That is God's Word for us this morning. Is that good news? Back in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says of Jesus Christ, he says this, God, God raised Him, Jesus, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realm. Jesus, who is, by the way, God-man. Jesus, still in a human body, both fully human and fully divine, is seated at the right hand of God. And look at what He says. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, I don't know if you noticed, but the words there are the same words that are used here in chapter 6 to describe the evil forces that are arrayed against us. The rulers, the authorities, those cosmic powers. <laughs> See, before Paul tells us that we have this enemy, back in chapter 1, he says, Jesus, our Savior, God who became man to become our Redeemer, exalted back into the throne as God, the Creator God, still wearing a human body, which just blows my mind. But Jesus is there, and He is over all of these powers that are come against us. Notice it doesn't say that He is just seated above. It says He is seated, you see that in the second line, far above. It's not like Jesus is just kind of clinging on to power against Satan, who's this great, powerful enemy. Satan is huge and powerful, but not to Jesus. He is far above these powers that are against us. So we don't need to fear. Jesus is in control. The power of Jesus Christ is with us, and we are to be strong in His power. He goes on and he says that we have a mission. We have a mission. Verse, uh, if you look down in, in um, it's actually said twice, but let me just read verse 14. Stand, therefore. If you go back to verse 13, 
We are to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. If you'll actually look through the passage, four times it uses this little phrase, stand. The mission that God gives to you and me as we still live here on planet earth, in the time between we become become believers and followers of Jesus Christ until the time He takes us home to heaven, our mission is to stand. Our mission is not to go hunt down Satan. Let's go devil hunting and let's take him down. Scripture never calls for us to go hunt down Satan. If you can find that in the Scripture, you come show it to me because I can't. What it tells us is to resist Satan, James writes. Peter writes the same in his first little letter. Resist the devil. And it says here that we are to resist him by standing. This word standing is not what we think of as, you know, the, the road crew on the, you know, by the side of the road standing there leaning on their shovels. It's not that kind of standing. This is a military type of standing where it's stand your ground. Do not let the enemy take an inch of ground. It's the type of standing for the, the linebacker in the football team. You know, His job is to stand his ground and not let the enemy get through. That's our job, to stand. What does that look like then in real life? If you and I stand against Satan, what does it look like? We get a real clear picture of it in the book of Revelation chapter 12 where the author is describing saints who overcame Satan, the evil one. Well, look at what it says. It says, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, it's by the power of Jesus Christ and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, what it says is the way they overcame wasn't by going out and defeating Satan. You know, we're going to hunt him down and chase him down and take him down. It's not that. They overcame by the power of Christ, by standing firm with their, by the word of their testimony. They did not shrink from saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. They did not shrink from living for Jesus Christ. They did not compromise their walk and their following Jesus Christ, even to the point of death which is significant, by the way, because what it also says is that if you and I stand for Jesus Christ and we are victorious in standing for Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean we're going to be exempt from death or from difficult times. Matter of fact, it may come, the victory may come at the point of death. And you say, what kind of victory is that? Well, it's exactly the same victory that Jesus won. Jesus purchased our victory, how? On the cross! And in the resurrection, and the reality is that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that's where we're going. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. That's our future is resurrection and heaven. So the point is that this world now is not our home. When we became believers in Jesus Christ, we, as the Scripture says, we were transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We were made, we were changed from being citizens of earth to citizens of heaven. We were changed from those who are followers of Satan, the scripture says, to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And our home is no longer here. Our home is in heaven. In the meantime, while we are here on earth, as we've said, we have a mission. It's to stand, to live as faithful followers of Jesus. 
to hold our ground. Fortunately, God doesn't just say, well, go stand for, go stand for me. <laughs> Have a nice life. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> no. We read on. He doesn't just leave us here and say, well, I hope you do well. God knows us. He knows the enemy. He knows the enemy's resources. He knows the enemy's strengths and weaknesses. He knows the enemy's tactics. And He has left us, the Scripture says here, with an armor. He has, he has given us resources. He has given us everything that we need to stand. He says, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You have an enemy. He wants to take you out. The evil day is today or any day and every day when Satan's desire is to take you down and take you out of commission, to get you away from following Christ, to drag you into failure and sin. Your mission is to stand. And what he says is the resources we need to do that is the armor of God. And it says, did you notice that little word, the full armor? God doesn't supply His troops with just most of what we need. God is a great commander. And He says He gives us the full armor. Every resource we need, it's here available to us. The question is, are we going to avail ourselves of it? Are we going to stand in the resources He has given us? Or are we going to fall or cut and run? Paul uses the analogy of a Roman soldier to help us picture what we need here to stand. Six pieces of armor he mentions. Let me just read the, the passage. Begin in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Six pieces of armor. He begins with the belt of truth. Having fastened the belt of truth, the, the belt was the, the very first piece of equipment that, that a soldier would put on. And while a belt doesn't seem to us very strategic, it really was the, it really was the foundation for everything else. The belt was, was what they used to then take their long robe and, and to pull it up and tuck it in so that it became, uh, more like a, a mini skirt or actually more of a diaper as they kind of fold it because what that does is it lets your legs be free so you don't get tripped up over that or some other, you know, soldier comes up, flips it over your head and, <laughs> you know. The belt was also important because it's what the equipment, the, all the, 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 the knives, swords, the, the fighting equipment was attached there. 
It was the foundation point. The, the breastplate would also attach to that. Things would attach. It was crucial. And he says that foundation place for us is truth. And many would take this and say that what he means is that it's, it's, it is that we are anchored in truth and we do need to be anchored in truth, but I think that's covered later in the text. I think it's better to understand this word truth as a qualitative word. To be people who are people of truth, or maybe to put it in different terms, sincere or being true, it is a sincerity of commitment. In other words, I am true, I am committed to the cause. I am committed to standing for Jesus Christ. It is my aim, it is my passion, it is my ambition in life to stand for Jesus Christ, to follow Him, to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And I think this is foundational, it's important, and it is actually an indictment to most of us Because for most of us, that's not even a real big thought. For most of us, the driving factor in our life, the prime commitment in our life, is not following Jesus Christ. It's being comfortable, if we're honest. First thought when we wake up in the day really isn't, Lord, what is it you want me to do today? You know, it's. Oh, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get through that? I wonder what I want for breakfast. Uh, oh, what am I going to do for lunch? You know, how, We're thinking about the things that make us comfortable. And it's not bad to be thinking about lunch once in a while. It's about that time. Well, we'll get down here in a second. But what is it that drives us and moves us? You see, the reality is if our commitment isn't to follow Christ, if our commitment isn't to stand for Him, to live for Him, we will be taken out every time. Whenever the battle comes, we're going to be a casualty. The belt of truth, the foundation to be committed to the mission. Second thing of this armor, he says, is the the breastplate of righteousness. Having put that on, righteousness is simply to live right, to do what is right. Paul has already called us in this book to live rightly. Back in chapters 4 and 5, he says that we are no longer to live like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, but rather we're to live like believers, as those who name the name of Christ, as those who say we're followers of God. We ought to live as such. We ought to live and do what's right. To not be folks who just practice churchianity. We know the church jargon. We know the right things to say. So we put on our, our you know Sunday clothes and we clean ourselves up and we look right and we clean up our talk and and we come and we, you know, we do all the Christian niceties here and then go out and live like the rest of the world. And he says, not so. We must be committed to live what we profess. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, he says, verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. See, what he's saying is that every time that we don't live up to to what we profess. Every time that we say, well, I believe this and I know this is right, but over here, you know, I I go this way. I say that I want to follow Jesus, but I tolerate in my life sin, like, you know, things like gossip. You know, just a little lie here and there. Just a little cheating, a little fudging of this and that. You know, 
a little bit of lust, you know, a little greed, and, and they're not big deals. What he says is that what happens is when we tolerate that stuff, we are giving the devil an opportunity. It is like the soldier who the breastplate, you see, covers all the vital parts here from, from arrows and daggers and stuff that come. Without the breastplate, they go right in and kill you. With the breastplate, they hit and bounce off. He says, it's foolish for a soldier to go out exposed and it's foolish for us to go out thinking that a little bit of sin doesn't matter. What we've done is just open ourselves up and made ourselves an easy target for the enemy. He can take us out anytime he wants. The breastplate of righteousness is don't toy with sin. Verse 15, we find the next piece of armor. It says we are to have feet that are wearing the shoes that are prepared with the gospel of peace. See, in war, shoes are vital for proper footing and for proper movement and for proper protection. Many of you probably know that back in 1777, the Revolutionary War was almost lost by the American soldiers simply because they didn't have footwear. A third, one out of every three American soldiers was going and marching through the snow with no shoes. It almost devastated the army. Roman soldiers had tough sandals or sandals that had tough soles that were designed to stand up against, you know, it was, it was common to sharp sticks, or, you know, put sharp points on them, bury them in the ground so the points are just sticking up a little bit and cover them with loose dirt or with leaves or other things. So soldiers come running and many of them were barefoot or they had poor shoes. They step on that. It pierces through, just pierces the foot, disables the soldier, takes them out. Romans had good shoes. They knew the importance of good shoes. Not only that, they had invented cleats. <laughs> they had studs on their shoes to give them, give them firm footing in loose soil and slick soil. He says, our shoes are important. You and I need to be grounded in the gospel of peace. The gospel, you see, is that which brings peace with God. You and I can have a sure foundation and confidence when we have, we are sure of our relationship with God through the gospel that we understand as the scripture there says, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's a sure footing there. But there's more than that, I think. The gospel not only brings peace with God, it also brings peace with one another. That's been a big theme in this book of Ephesians. It's the fact that there is unity with us as believers. That those who are far off and been brought near, those of us who have been in enemies have been brought together into one body. That is, from the beginning to the end of this book, unity of the believers is a theme. And I think that's part of the thing here, that the gospel of peace makes us united, inseparable, and instrumental and important to one another. A key part of winning in battle is having coordinated effort of all of the soldiers on the same side, coordinated action, coordinated movement with every member of the unit. And so it is in the body of Christ. We need to be working together. And so he says, a sure part of this sure footing that we need is a gospel of peace which gives us peace with God and as well calls us to peace with men. That's why Paul says, 
in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because it's essential to our success as soldiers in standing. We need to stand together. Next, The next piece of armor he goes on is to pick up the shield of faith. Shield of faith, verse, verse 16, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. From the very beginning of, of human history, when Satan, from in that Garden of Eden, when Satan gave that first temptation, it was, it was all about planting doubts about God. Getting, trying to get a, put a wedge in between humanity and God. You can't really trust God. He's not really on your side. He really doesn't have your best interest at heart. He whispers in your ear, God isn't good. God isn't good. God doesn't care. You see, the shield of faith is having faith that steadfastly trusts God that steadfastly believes in God and His goodness and His love towards us. And that kind of faith is like a shield that blocks and extinguishes those darts of doubt that Satan shoots our way. The shield that is described here is a very large shield that a soldier can get behind and he's protected. And that's good, but it's even better taking the concept of that gospel of peace in the last one, it's even better when you realize that the way the soldiers used these was not just as individual soldiers, but they were as, they were as a company, as a unit. And so they would come together and they would put their shields next to each other. And your shield is next to mine, who's next to theirs, and all of us. And we've got suddenly not just a little shield we're hiding behind, we've got a wall. And then they would take those and they would not only form that way, they would, they would form sides and they could even form a roof. They even had a name for that. It was the formation of the tortoise. And what you've got is a tank that can move and is shielded and protected from all sides and from all the attacks. And so it is, brothers and sisters, that when you and I are trying to stand against the doubts and the little of the evil one to discourage how we need to lean on one another. That it's not just we wield the shield of faith by ourselves, but we are together wielding the shields of faith. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together. As believers, we need to be together frequently, regularly, continually coming together as believers because we are stronger as we stand together. Next he goes on in verse 17. He says, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation protecting the head, the most, perhaps the most vital part of the body. And it's the, this helmet of salvation is the knowledge, the assurance, the confidence in our salvation that I Am, I am saved from the wrath of God. I am saved from the penalty of sin. I have a future that is secure. I am going to heaven and not to hell. Do you have that assurance this morning? 
The Scripture says we get there not by being good. It's not by being better. It's not by, by going to church a lot. It's not by doing good things. It's not by getting our name on a membership roll at a, at a church. It's not by you know helping little old ladies across the street. The way we have assurance from that, that our sins are forgiven, our sin is covered, our future in heaven is secure, it is, the Scripture says, by believing in Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.16, you guys know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has, present, right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. With that kind of assurance, we have confidence like Paul did as he wrote the, wrote the Romans. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, some of these the same terms again for these demonic and satanic forces, he says, that nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're going to stand against Satan, we need to know for sure this issue is settled. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. My, my salvation is sure. Sixthly and lastly, he says we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the one weapon of offense in this armor. And the word here for the sword is used of, of a, the short sword. It's a little 18-inch, basically, sword. It's used for the close-in close, close in combat when the fighting gets up close and personal. Taking God's Word as a weapon to protect us is not using it like some kind of magical formula, like some kind of magical incantation. Some people think that. They think, you know, I just need to say some, <laughs> I need to say some magic words and Satan's going to leave, you know. And so they'll start, you know, what do they know? Well, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And, and they think, you know, somehow if I just quote a, some kind of scripture that Satan's going to go, and he's going to hold his ears and run away screaming. You know what? Satan doesn't run away screaming when you quote scripture. Matter of fact, Satan can quote Scripture. It's not a magical thing there. The power of the Scripture, he says here, the power we stand in isn't magic and it's not little words. It is in Jesus Christ. The power here of the Word of God in the armor is not using it as a magic thing. It is two things. It's knowing God's Word. And it's applying it to our life and our situations. A soldier, at least unless he's a stupid one, a foolish one, doesn't wait till the battle to go and pull out his sword and go, huh, I wonder how he used this thing. <laughs> if he waits till the battle, he's dead. Soldiers spend Huge amounts of time and energy practicing, learning exactly how to use it, how to wield this weapon in the right way, because they have to be better than the opponent if they're going to win. As I said, Satan knows Scripture. We need to know it well. It's instructive to go to Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is being tempted by Satan and see how Jesus uses Scripture to say to dictate his response to what Satan says and how he uses Scripture to rebuke what Satan says. If we're going to be effective 
in standing, we need to know the Word of God and we need to use it. We need to pick up the Bible, start learning the Word of God, and start applying it to our daily life. It's really very practical. Every one of these six things are intensely practical. They're not mystical. It's not some magic armor that we pray on every morning. Oh, Lord, I'm right now I'm, I'm, I'm putting on the belt. Oh, Lord, now, now right now I'm going to put on the breastplate. It's, it's not that. It's every day. It's saying, I'm committed to live for Jesus. It's, Lord, is there sin in my life I need to get out? Show it to me. I don't want to toy with sin. I don't want to mess with sin. Lord, thank You that there's peace with us. Lord, may I live in peace with my brother and sister. Don't let me, don't let us get divided over silly, stupid things. Lord, help us to stand together. You see, it's practical. When Paul gets to the end, again, because we're standing here not in our power, we're going to stand against Satan, not in our power, but in the power of Christ, and through the armor that He has given to us, the resources He has given to us, which by the way, going back to that standing together, you see, you are a resource that God has given me so that I can stand. and I'm a resource He's given you so that we can stand together. See, it's very practical. Because we stand in His strength and with His armor, and we do stand together, Paul ends this section with verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, what he says is, and some would call this the seventh piece of armor, and rightly so. For us to stand in the Lord's strength, we need His help. And prayer is essential to this. It's just saying, Lord, help me to stand. And then because we stand together, it's, Lord, I pray for my brother Rob. I pray for my brother Paul. I pray for my brother Bill. I pray for my brother Steve. I pray for my sister. Lord, help us to stand. And when we know that someone is in a trial, we pray especially and specifically, and he says here, with perseverance for them. Because we stand together. Let's pray. Father, we needed to hear this this morning because the reality is, for so many of us, we have completely forgotten that we're in a battlefield. Somehow our vision of life is that we've stepped onto a cruise ship. We're looking for, you know, we're looking to upgrade our cabin. We're looking to get the first spot in the banquet line. We're hoping to spend the rest of the day laying out by the pool. And we've forgotten that we're in a battle and that we have a mission. Lord, change our perspective so that we aren't just easy prey and easy pickings for the enemy. He desires nothing uh, probably more gleefully. He, He loves to see us just sitting out on the sidelines having totally just disengaged from the mission. Father, some of us need to, this morning, put on the belt. We need to commit ourselves this morning to getting 
getting busy with the mission, being committed to standing. Lord, some folks are hurt and caught and wounded and we need to come alongside and encourage to help them to stand. Some of us are hurt and wounded and we need to reach out to others. So, Lord, I pray that we would be busy until Jesus comes that we would not lose sight of our mission here on earth. How we long for the day when we will be home. When the battle will be over. But until then, may we stand firm in your power and stand with our brothers and sisters wearing your, the armor you have given us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.